Gonna have a real good time together We're gonna have a real good time together We're gonna laugh the child together Have a real good time together Okay. Yeah, sounds good. And uh, and um, audio's good on this end. Audio's great. Excellent. You sound nice, and uh, you got a full, you got a full, nice, uh, bassy vocal coming through there. It's uh, you got a you got a voice for the radio. Oh, good. Yeah, I've a face a face to match. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Um, uh, uh, well. Welcome to uh, Jokerman Podcast, folks. Uh, today, podcast about one Lewis Allen Reed, um, uh, somewhat uh, uh, fatefully being recorded just the day after the 10th anniversary of his passing, which I didn't even realize this was going to be the case when we scheduled this. Um, but, uh, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't you know it? The world has a funny way of working out sometimes. Here to talk about his magisterial new biography. Of Mr. Reed uh, is Will Hermes. Will, thank you so much for joining. Hey, my pleasure. Ground zero for <sighs> Lou Reed studies. That's well, yeah. <laughs> for better or for worse. Um, oh, for better. I always, I always learn something. <laughs> Although I'm worried I'm going to learn something more now because the book's already published. But. Oh no, it's uh, please. I've I've been uh, I've been learning all sorts of uh, stuff myself from the uh, the the deep 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 dive that you've taken in the King of New York, Lou Reed, the King of New York, uh, a uh, sobriquet actually that uh, came from David Bowie at the Bowie 50th anniversary celebration, right? Indeed, yeah. When, that was new uh, to me. When I uh, watched that uh, video clip, really just in the midst of research and heard him say that, I was like, ah. That's <laughs> I it. I think I want to use that for something. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, David, of course, revered him and was, you know, onto the Velvet Underground before the al- the first album was even before released. Before the Velvet Underground yeah, existed, had, had recorded material available, uh, somewhat yeah. legendarily. Like uh, many collaborators of his, as you well know, um, you know, had a relationship with him, you know, through his entire life, um, musical and uh, and as a friendship too, and, and personal. Some some ups and uh, some downs, we could say, mm-hmm. as seemed yeah. to be the case with many of the close relationships in Lou's life. Indeed, but that uh, you know that's why. That's why we love him. That's why he is such a fascinating man to talk about and talk about and talk about and talk about. Um, how did you, I mean, how did you, so we have, we, you know, as you actually mentioned in the book a couple times, you know, there are other Lou Reed biographies out there, most notably from Victor Bacris and uh, Anthony DeCurtis. Um, how did you kind of decide this was a project that you wanted to take on yourself and, and kind of add to the corpus of literature about Lou? Well, uh, 10 years ago, give or take, um, as, uh, as fate would have it, uh, Lou passed and the outpouring of emotion that I saw around his death on social media, which was really the first such, um, public mourning I saw on the internet, at least that registered with me about mm-hmm. an artist that I really cared about deeply. And it just blew me away, like how deeply he touched people and how personal some of the reminiscences were about, um, you know, just times in people's lives and changes they were going through and drug use and sexuality and they it was all like it was very personal and these were not necessarily people who knew Reed although some of them did um so that was kind of the trigger and at the time there weren't that many biographies um and uh you know Victor Bacchus's obviously came out in the 90s and you know there were there were some other ones there's and some incredible uh velvet underground um books resources uh but um you know I felt 
that there was a real, because I had done a deep dive into a lot of this stuff um, and the Velvet's bootlegs and, you know, all the kind of real fanboy uh, deep catalog stuff. Um, <laughs> I know, I know, I know the kind of stuff you're talking about. <laughs> you do, you do. Um, and, uh, and I just felt like there was no, no book had yet like sort of tied all of that together. Like mm. how could I make a book that make the book that I want to read, which is like a narrative that goes you know, deep into every um, every corner of his life and uh, a kind of narrative arc that would be good storytelling, but that also would have, you know, lots of all the interesting nuggets that, you know, thrill me as kind of a, as a, as a Lou Reed fan. So I started working, but I knew going in that I was going to be playing a long game just because I'm a slow writer. <laughs> Yeah, for better or for worse. Um, my first book took me like, you know, five, six years. Love Goes to Buildings on Fire, which had Lou as kind of an absent father. It was a book about New York City's kind of intersecting music cultures, music ecosystem in the mid 70s when the city was uh, in pretty rough shape. But yeah. uh, musically, it was, you know, incredibly fertile. It was the birth of punk, the birth of disco, arguably the, the birth of, um, you know, the loft jazz scene was flowering and uh, hip hop, of course, um, literally born during that period. Maybe not literally, but uh, um, a case could be made. And uh, and that took a long time. I knew this would take a long time. I didn't know how long <laughs> it was going to take. <laughs> um, it took, uh, you know, nearly 10 years. And in that time, a number of other biographers got their books out. So, um, so I did enter a field this uh, past month. Um, there was a little bit more crowded, but uh, you know, I hope this kind of stands apart just in terms of the the type of book I was trying to write, the depth of um, you know, even the end notes. <laughs> <laughs> 80 pages of endnotes. Obviously, I got a little carried away. Uh, my editor would probably uh, co-sign that statement. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, it was um, it was really fun to do, and I, I felt like I came up with some good stuff and uh, got some good photos in there. So hopefully, people dig it. Yeah, uh, it's, <laughs> that's to put it to put it lightly. Uh, you came out with some good stuff. It is really a uh, soup to nuts look at the man from you know uh, uh, starting with his family heritage over there in Eastern Europe, right up through uh, you know his final days out there on Long Island, uh, and then even beyond. You kind of uh, very touchingly actually the book ends not with Lou but with Lori, uh, which I thought was a really brilliant um, and emotionally resonant way to, to tie everything together. Um, Lou, you know, like you said, as you said, as we're aware, uh, has had, has had some, uh, you know, <laughs> things written about and things said about him over time, uh, you know, dating back all the way to the early, uh, Velvet's fanzines and stuff up through the contentious relationship, we could say with his buddy Lester Banks or, you know, <laughs> at one time, buddy Lester Banks. Um, yeah. and then obviously all the music critics throughout time and then the, bi the biographers who have come through over the last couple decades. Did you, I mean, I feel like the book is really kind of in tune with like what, what we're talking about now, what's happening in the world today. It's a really interesting um, and forward-looking, I think, look at Lou's life in the light of or through the lens of gender fluidity and, um, you know, uh, things like gay rights, trans rights, which are, you know, for better, or I mean, unfortunately, are still very much the vanguard of uh, the culture, you know, things that are being fought over today. Um, did you feel like there were like narratives about Lou's life that you wanted to correct or expand upon or different areas of his experience that maybe hadn't gotten the right kind of look or uh, read over time? Yeah. I mean, if, uh, if I were to get granular, there would be a number of different points, but you know, as, as you said at the beginning of the question, in a broad stroke sort of way, I really just wanted to look at it from the point of view of right now, like the, uh, you know, the, now we're now in the twenties. Um, when I started this, we were in the teens <laughs> and, uh, you know, I guess, you know, it, I, I've never really thought about it this way before, but pretty much my entire career as a writer has been trying to write about stuff that happened in the past, but make it relevant 
in the present. And I think part of, uh, part of that comes from my interest in the Velvet Underground and in Lou Reed and in uh, coming of age in the 80s, uh, you know, in the indie rock, alt rock, um, what have you. Uh, era was just coming up, golden, golden era of hip hop, um, when sampling was still, uh, you know, a little bit of a Wild West situation legally. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Tribe could grab the, um, you know, the base, the double the bass line from, from uh, Walk Wild on the Side. Wild Side and make an absolute stone classic, even though that turned out to be legally problematic for them and kind of a t one of the touchstone cases of uh, of sampling. But I bring it up because it uh, it struck me that like I adored and still do adore R.E.M. Um, mm -hmm. And it was really R.E.M.'s covers of the Velvet Underground that kind of cemented my obsession with the Velvets. Um, and they must have had, I mean, I, I could go three or four just off the top of my head, but uh, they probably had plenty. Um, and, uh, and so I tried to do that with the book. Um, I wanted to write about it from the point of view of like Lou Reed and the Velvets remain kind of stunningly culturally relevant, like consistently. Um, Todd Haynes just, uh, you know, finished that documentary, The Velvets, um, sure. which I thought was really, really beautifully done. And uh, there is, um, you know, there was a tribute album that was one of Hal Wilner's parting shots. So, uh, you know, I, I thought that it was timely and certainly to get granular, I mean, issues of, of gender uh, and sexuality, fluidity um, of identity. Uh, it just felt more current than ever, you know, now that there's like this horrific culture war being waged on non-binary folk and many other folk. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it, it's kind of amazing to read the book uh, and, you know, you pull um, quotes and stuff from interviews and, and you know, talk about people's uh, reception and stuff, uh, you know, their, their memories and just the things that happened. And it, it almost seems, and, and I'm sure this isn't really the case, but, you know, it, it, it seems less, like it was less politically fraught you know, at certain moments in the past that, like, Lou was, you know, uh, uh, dating Rachel Humphreys, for instance, right, than it might, like, today. That that seemed like um, it uh, it was sort of a lower-key, less, um, you know, politically valent type of thing. It was just, it, it made sense to him. It, it, it was what he was interested in. It was, it, it worked for him on a personal level versus something like that today would be so, um, you know, I, I feel like that would, would draw so much attention, both positive and negative from both sides of the, you know, uh, uh, continuum. Right. And, I, you know, I think part of that was because Lou was not a massive superstar. I think part of it was that uh, this stuff hadn't caught the radar of state houses yet. You know, it hadn't been, you know, literally politicized by politicians uh, in such a specific way. But it was it was as dangerous as it is today, if not more so. I mean, you think about, you know, Lou talking, Lou giving an interview where he's talking about being gay, um, using exactly that word, um, just days after Harvey Milk was shot yeah. in San Francisco. So, you know, finding these kind of cultural parallels uh or more really parallel events that were happening in the culture what, during different periods in Lou's life was, uh, was fruitful. That, it was something that I did in the last book and was really kind of fun. You're like, oh, wow, when this concert was happening, <laughs> CBGB's, like, you know, this was happening uptown, uh, you know, with Hector Laveau at the Cheetah Club or sure. something like that. And uh, with, um, with Lou... Uh, the album New York, for instance, to fast forward a few more years from, um, you know, say the 70s, was, uh, w was, um, was an album that was written specifically about all of these things that were happening culturally in the news at that moment. So it, it was almost like um, his work uh, mirrored my, uh, my approach and vice versa. Absolutely. So, yeah, New York is, uh, I mean, obviously, it's, you don't need me to say New York is amazing. Uh, but it, it was funny when we had our conversation about it on the show a couple months ago, 
just like how, again, how eternally relevant it was, right? You know, from the basic surface level stuff, from name dropping fucking Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump <laughs> to um, incredible. You know, it, it, it seems like he's singing into the future at, at moments on the record, um, but right up to like actual song, you know, whole, whole songs with um, uh, themes like Straw Man, for instance, which I feel like is more relevant today than ever. That's one of my absolute favorite Lou Reed songs, and it, it means so much more to me today where I am now, you know, kind of having grown up uh, under the circumstances that I've grown up than it did in the past. It's, um, yeah, I mean, the man is just... Uh, He's some sort of historical spirit. I feel like he could just kind of anticipate what was coming down the pike, uh, both artistically, uh, politically, uh, personally, socially, whatever. And whether or not he was consciously responding to that, you know, through his art at the time, he, he, it, it, there's always a connection you can draw there, you know? Yeah. And it's fascinating because it's, it's almost like, against the rules of songwriting like you're supposed to be general you're supposed to supposed to leave specifics out um so that your songs will be timeless and they they won't you know they won't age poorly because the reference will disappear um or just sound corny i mean even that's something that lou said i think about um when he was talking about writing heroin and the term jim jims which are all the jim jims in this town mm. um and how if i'm remembering this correctly how he's like yeah that wasn't even really a, an expression that anybody <laughs> used that i'd ever heard anywhere but it just seemed like if i made something up that would be timeless because it wouldn't be like some slang that was you know in effect in the mid 60s but by the time it, somebody's yeah. listening in the 80s it's uh it just sounds hokey so um so the thing with new york is though he was incredibly specific and yet this stuff is uh this stuff really remains so vivid in the way that, uh, you know, somebody writes something about a particular point in time and they use the specifics of that time. And the the picture they paint is so vivid that you, um, you know, you 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 do you do the work comparing it to the present day yourself. You don't need the song to kind of leave holes um, you kind of, uh, you know, you can look at the Vermeer and say like, oh, that's interesting. That's how it was then. How is that similar to how things are now? Totally. It might be fun to have a kid that I could kick around A little me to fill up with my thoughts A little me or he or she to fill up with my dreams A way of saying life is not a loss I'd keep the tiger away from school and two to him myself Keep him from the poison of the crowd but then again, pristine isolation might not be the best idea. It's not good trying to mortalize yourself. Beginning of a great adventure. Uh, on the note of New York, uh, you know, one of the uh, funniest songs on that record, uh, most interesting songs uh, to me is Beginning of a Great Adventure, um, which, uh, you know, picks up on a theme that I think I detect, uh, you know, any, anyone can detect really in a lot of his songwriting over the years, that of, you know, uh, families. Um, you know, you see this mm. very clearly in the song Families from the Bells, which is one of my, like, all-time favorites, uh, right up through, like, Baton Rouge on Ecstasy, right? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the, the idea of Lou, I think the idea of children seemed to, like, weigh very heavily on him. You know, he, he engaged with this concept, uh, uh, you know, in, in a lot of these songs over time. Um, and you have a great quote, I think it's a direct quote, or, or maybe it's, uh, you know, secondhand or whatever, but, uh, you know, in the last chapter, he mentions not, not wanting to be erased at the end of his life, right? Um, and, you know, obviously, having, having children carrying on your familial legacy, that is one, that is the primary way to avoid being erased, um, you know, in the, uh, uh, in the continuum of the human species. Uh, how do you, do you have a reading on the man's inability, um, unwillingness, whatever it was that didn't lead to him having children with any of his partners versus this concept of him, again, not wanting to be erased right there at the very end? Yeah, there is a, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of contradictions there because I think that, um, 
from what I heard anyway, I mean, going back to his days at Syracuse um, and his pal Liz Annis, who was um, a friend of Delmore Schwartz's mm. and who was a single mom. Um, she told me that uh, Lou like loved playing with her son. Like he just really got a kick out of it. He was apparently good with kids. He liked kids um, in certain situations, I guess when they were other people's kids, which they <laughs> always were. Um, and uh, yet going, going forward, um, you know, I think it, you know, it was an issue in uh, at least one of his relationships. Um, I think uh, Sylvia was pretty upfront in a number of different outlets about the mm. fact that you know that was uh, that well, that was one of the things that uh, was was tricky for them to navigate. Um, but uh, you know, he was also, um, and this isn't uh, not to draw. Uh, exact analogy between pets and kids but uh he was an absolute um devoted in terms of love anyway he might not have been so good at walking his dogs but he <laughs> loved his dogs um and he had dogs throughout his life i mean really he he um he and uh, Shelley adopted a dog in Syracuse who wound up uh becoming the family dog Back in Long Island. That I think is referenced um, on families. Now that dog is more of a, pa- a part of the family than I am. That He, he, he says in that yes. song. Yes. Yes. The dog Seymour, which was, <laughs> uh, the dog was female, um, but he wanted to name the dog Seymour after a short story series that he'd read in the New Yorker. And uh, he, uh, he added an E to Seymour. So even though it was pronounced the same for the record. It was Seymour with an E at the with end. With an E at the end. <laughs> to feminize so, it. To feminize it, of course. Yes. Um, so, you know, he, uh, but he did not want kids. Um, he and Lori did not have kids. Um, he and Sylvia did not have kids. He never became a dad. He had, a, as you said, when we, you know, got into this tangent on uh, families, families were an issue with him. It was very, mm-hmm. very complicated. Um, his relationship with his own family um and uh you know for whatever reason um whether it was just protecting his own time and space to create um prioritizing his creative acts as an artist over his procreative um act and acts and responsibilities as uh he would have had as a dad um he decided to to not have kids um but uh as as you mentioned the song uh, Baton Rouge pops out as one where at least the narrator has some regrets yep. about not having kids, about something about uh, going to his ex's, ex's daughter's quinceanera, if I'm yep. pronouncing that correctly, <laughs> um, and, uh, and feeling some regret. Clearly a uh, uh, challenging uh, subject for the man. I mean, you think about those songs, you also think about something like, you know, Kill Your Sons, you know, it's maybe the, the most uh, extraordinary example of this, but right up through like Harry's Circumcision, the concept of, you know, uh, turning into your turning into your father and, and hating that uh, about yourself, you know, to the to the point of some very gruesome returns in uh, in Harry's Circumcision, one of the most shocking songs uh, in anyone's discography. Um, but, you know, that was that was Lou. He seemed to be able to, he contained multitudes to, uh, you know, to quote Bob Dylan. Uh, he, he seemed to, you know, uh, inhabit and embody um, uh, strands and ideas and concepts that were at odds, you know, in, in conflict with one another at the same time, um, which, you know, is, is part of what makes him such a fascinating subject, like we've talked about. I wonder also um, about your read on him as as a solo artist versus as a member of a band, right? I mean, he he begins with the Velvet Underground, obviously, and the Velvets didn't really ever put out a bad record, didn't really ever put out a bad song, you know, give or take one or two. Um, and, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a very short-lived, you know, kind of uh, um, uh, artistic adventure there. John is out of the band by 1968. Um, right. And then Lou himself is out of the band, you know, about 18 months later. Um, I I often think, you know, I, I, I wonder, you know, would Lou have been happier or more commercially successful or more, you know, artistically fulfilled if he had been able to 
work in a band, you know, in a group with collaborators over time instead of like on his own. Um, you know, typically I think a lot of the strongest points in Lou's solo career are those opportunities where he forges briefly, temporarily, a really strong collaborative bond with another artist who was kind of on his level. Bowie on Transformer, Quine yeah. on Blue Mask, Kale when he comes back to the fold, you know, Andrella, so on. Um, at the same time, uh, <laughs> Lou, Lou seemed kind of constitutionally incapable of really sharing credit and creative duties in an even manner. You know, you see that at the beginning with the Velvets, you see that at the very end with Trella, and then on, um, you know, uh, from there on out. Do, do you have any thoughts about his decision to kind of go it alone as a solo artist for the majority of his career instead of trying to recapture that that magic that he had there at the beginning as a collaborative member of a bigger group? Yeah, I agree with you that, uh, you know, his much of his strongest work, I, I, I won't say two of one, but uh in that direction um, was done with strong collaborators um, and all the ones you mentioned. Um, you know, I think that maybe it was just the fallout of his inability to preserve and care for these relationships. And I think a lot of it, you know, it's hard for me to know. Um, you write a biography, which is not something that I really ever set out to do. It just sort of happened that um, Lou Reed became, he's such a fascinating figure. He is such a, uh, he's such a magnet or at least such a, uh, such a zealot like character in terms <laughs> of how he moved through the arts world in New York city post-World War II um, in every genre and, you know, right up until, uh, you know, the end of his life, the last 20 years, he connected with Laurie Anderson, one of the great artists of New York uh, in the 20th century and into the 21st. Um, and all of that was, uh, you know, made him, made him an attractive, uh, an attractive subject for a biography, but guessing why he couldn't, maintain these relationships um it, it you know it was i i sort of didn't want to do too much armchair psychologizing sure um just because i'd rather just do the research lay out the facts in as much detail as i can and pick the ones that i think you know shine a, a light on one aspect of his personality or another and just let people sort it out but if I'm kind of sitting outside of it and saying, well, what would I think is the reason he couldn't get along with folks? Well, I think, A, he was he was a bit of a control freak. I think that's <laughs> a fair statement to say objectively uh, from everything that I've read and all the people I talk to. But I think that might have come from, you know, a, an anxiety about, uh, you know, that came, really was born out of self-doubt. Um, and I think that one way, you know, as somebody who certainly has dealt with anxiety, who's dealt with depression, who is constantly, you know, uh, uh, battling self-doubt in, in many aspects of my life, not to overshare, but that's just been, you know, it was something that like rang true to me. And if I'm not projecting here, I think that, uh, if you don't, um, if you, are if you're a little unsure of yourself maybe you are probably going to be doubting other people as well and maybe if you just keep complete control of the situation and you change things uh, the minute you sort of get uh, cold feet about something um that's a better way to go than uh than the negotiations involved in mm. a democratic co-creation sure you know, it's uh, it's one of the the just I, I, I find myself coming back to that question, uh, you know, uh, time and time again and not not necessarily wondering like, well, why the hell didn't the guy, you know, want to want to be in a band or share credit more? Because obviously, you know, he didn't because he didn't. And Lord knows yeah. that he went through, you know, uh, his, his fair share of difficulties growing up. Um, but, um, you know, you just wonder like like when he just comes back like a bolt of fucking lightning with the blue mask right and it's just a four-piece unit there and it's like so shocking and fully 
fleshed out just immediately on the heels of growing up in public in particular, which is this long and turgid and kind of like half-formed record that just doesn't sound at all like what you want a Lou Reed record to sound like. Right. You know, I just... I wonder, I think about this from a selfish standpoint of just like, what other blue masks were, were we missing from the man? Um, which I know is not a fair way to think about it, but uh, I can't, can't help but uh, come back to that. Yeah, well, you know, credit to Bob Quine, because Bob <sighs> Quine was one of the greatest electric guitarists. The man. Rock guitarists of his generation, really, the last 50 years. And, Absolutely. Uh, however much credit he gets, however high he rates on whatever best guitarists lists uh, you care to cite, um, he helped make that record great. And it wasn't just because he was a wicked-ass guitar player. It was because he was, a, I think, because he was a Velvets fan. Yeah. And because he knew what made that material the greatest of the great stuff. He was like a Velvet Underground bootlegger. You know, you guys have <laughs> talked about this. The guy's like, you know, he, uh, he sort of shit-canned uh, law school because he was in St. Louis <laughs> <laughs> going to uh you know going to velvet shows with his portable recorder and uh and bootlegging them so like he had this you know he had this understanding of like how you how two guitars should mesh not just how somebody should you know rip out um acidic leads but uh but you know also uh, you know i think about how words should work with music you know i think he contributed a lot absolutely yeah i mean uh, you, you could not lou could not have asked for a uh stronger uh or, or more ideal uh collaborator at that moment in time which is maybe why uh <laughs> quine was shown the door as quickly as he was um even though he he came back uh, you know tour with him a couple times against his better judgment perhaps this episode of Jokerman Podcast is presented by DistroKid. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to distribute their music and get it into all of the places it needs to go. Your Spotify's, your Apple Music's, your YouTube's, your TikTok's, your titles, your Instagram's, and any other streaming service of note. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy. With unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100%, that's right, 100, all of them, folks, of their royalties and earnings. DistroKid comes with tons of great features, including Mixia, which allows DistroKid users to put the finishing touches on their tracks in just minutes, getting a customizable and polished end result that anyone can feel confident in before sharing it with the world. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. So go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store to download it today. Um, can I ask a couple nerdy questions just about like the book itself and like your kind of decisions uh, as as an artist here? Oh, please, yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of the, I mean, all of the, uh, not all, uh, not a lot of all of the chapter titles are these locations just like maps basically you know upper west side to uh, uh, uh west village or or long island to uh lower east side or whatever what um I, and i love that about it. it that that's such a unique uh and perfect i think kind of way to spatially geographically map lose life which you know the man is maybe the most one of the most, if not the most, uh, uh, signature New York artist, you know, that, that we've ever had. What was, uh, was that, was that a decision that you made early on? Did that just kind of come to you out of nowhere? Was that something your editor brought to you? Well, it was, it was, uh, it was necessity is the mother of invention. Um, <laughs> my, uh, my initial draft of the book was, um, and this is just, uh, because of my incredible, uh, creative vision when it comes to organizing principles of books. It's just like, I'll just write, uh, the, the year and then that'll be the chapter title <laughs> and it'll be 196 you know 1965 1966 and um i literally put it together like that thinking that well maybe i'll change this and certainly by the time i got most of the way through it was like yeah the 1966 chapter is maybe a hundred pages right <laughs> <laughs> yeah 1976 is probably 10. So, um, 
So it was kind of trying to pull those um, those time frames together, and uh, and then just lighting on the fact that you know Lou Reed, unique among um, artists, maybe uh, not totally unique, but he stuck to, he was a New Yorker. He liked to, sure to be in New York. He really never lived anywhere else. He went upstate to school in Syracuse for a few years, moved back down. He did some records in the UK. He did some projects in Germany with Robert Wilson. Um, and he ultimately moved out to Long Island. But I just figured as a New Yorker myself, as somebody who grew up in Queens, spent time in Brooklyn, um, shared an apartment for a little while, and uh and uh in in manhattan um it uh i just figured like okay this this would be fun um trace uh traces traces movements um because he of course it's you know i like symmetry and he started on he might have started on in brooklyn but uh you know he was really raised in long island professed to hate long island yep but wound up going back to Long Island. Only to return to Long Island, exactly, yeah. to to pass. Exactly. Funny how things work sometimes. Um, yeah. Year-wise, that's, a, that's another great uh, uh, subject I wanted to, to ask about. Much of the, say like the lion's share of the action in this book, I, I didn't count the pages necessarily, but it certainly feels like, uh, you know, the focus is kind of there between like 65 and 75, and really that, you know, 66 to 71, you know, 72, you know, Velvet's into the, the early stages of, of his career, 73 maybe with the Rock and Roll Animal when he really kind of starts taking off. Like that's really kind of the, um, the, uh, the, the majority of what's going on here. And, you know, later on in his life, things kind of just, you know, move a little quicker, move a little smoother, um, both in, in reality as well as in the narrative of the book. Was that was that a conscious decision that you made that you really wanted to kind of like put that, you know, that um, that that keystone era of his life super directly under the microscope? Or were there, uh, you know, kind of <laughs> was it was it a harder sell to get 300 pages on Lou Reed in the 90s and 2000s past your editors? So you had to kind of focus on that, <laughs> that sexy popular time. Well, it was a little bit of both. I mean, it's the it's the total boilerplate behind the music narrative arc of an artist's life, um, or the narrative arc of you know most box sets. You know the uh, yep. the earlier stuff. You know the early to early middle stuff is the stuff that makes somebody famous and is very often is the best. With Lou, it was the you know it was his his early family stuff um was really interesting to me and uh i was able to get you know some information on that it took some digging but uh but there was not a huge amount available to me um i wanted to really write the velvet underground stuff i wanted to go deep i wanted to talk about shows i wanted to talk about the band's interest because if you're a lay person coming to this book you might not know you might know the velvet underground because you know a few of their songs but uh you know the fact that they shared a bill with the grateful dead in chicago the yep. fact that they um shared a bill with the allman brothers and uh <laughs> seem to have at least some admirers in uh the lou reed band the tots seem to be uh quite uh, enamored <laughs> of uh of the almonds um you know i wanted to draw those parallels because it's fun just you know I'm, I'm into music of that era uh and uh and so that made sense um I also didn't want to give uh, I didn't want to shortchange the tail end of his life because I thought that there were all what was interesting about the biography to me was discovering all this latter day stuff of his, even from albums that I disliked, um, where you would find like the I'd rediscover like the one song that was like really pretty great. Um, and when you ran down that uh, laundry list of songs about family, you know, I think about Junior Dad on the Metallica record. Absolutely. And how my God, like that song got its got itself so under my skin during the writing of this book, certainly during the tail end writing of this book, as just really one of his really great works. So emotional and, um, you know, I mean, it was also from, you know, hearing, reading the Metallica guys 
going on about uh, how moving it was to record that with him. So I wanted to get as much of the latter-day stuff in that was interesting. But that said, my editor was at one point like, you know, a two-volume Lou Reed biography maybe isn't practical. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe we can just like – do some do some shortening here and uh and I really am glad we did it because I think um a lot of the stuff that fascinated me was not going to fascinate the average reader um about uh for instance like all the music licensing he did for different ads across Europe um all the movies you know the uh the the potted um plot synopses of all these films that used his <laughs> music and at what point in the film's narrative they used his music like me breaking down um uh i'm forgetting the name of the movie anyway um there were a lot of those details that were best lost and um there were a lot of them that i didn't want to lose but what i did was move them into end notes mm-hmm. so for for people who are interested for the new york album i really wanted to trace a lot of references that uh that i'd heard and didn't understand but then found out what the references were um or things that i knew uh about you know police uh police violence um in new york in the 80s that lou was referring to so i break those things down but um it's in the end notes now for people who want to dig it yeah, I loved the, um, it, you know, it popped up a couple times uh, throughout the, the narrative. But, uh, you know, when Lou starts to open up to more, you know, kind of commercial licensing, I loved when you would just break into a paragraph. You're like, you know, he got 200 grand from, you know, uh, the French uh, French airlines for, for licensing Wildside. And then he got $50,000 for some like anti-drunk driving campaign for bottoming out or something like that. Uh, did the, did those come from? I'm I'm guessing those came from like his actual archive, which I know he just kind of left in a big ass storage unit and like had everything. That was, you know, that was one of the mother loads, maybe the mother load in the archive, were the you know the music licensing um, contracts, and it's something that I think for most biographers of musicians, you don't get to see because nobody wants to show you the money, you know, (laughs) nobody wants to talk about the money. Um, and no, and I'm not a business writer, but like, I just found it was fascinating and it, it, uh, it, it seemed that it might actually be kind of useful for musicians who are working now that the bottom has completely fallen out of selling you know, recorded music as right. a fetish object, as a as a physical item, or even as a download. Um, how money gets made, what the numbers were like back then for Lou Reed, and how he would, you know, even for the same song, like he might give a song away for free for uh, for some you know small indie filmmaker some you know grad school NYU filmmaker um he'd let use it use some song for nothing but then other folks he would charge six figures to use uh, one of his songs or he'd refuse to allow the velvets recording to be used because either he wasn't getting the same points on it or he um he just wanted to showcase say uh you know a new album of his like a live album um and so he'd say well no you can't use that version of uh of candy says but you can use this one sure um and uh and i just thought that was that was telling because that's if you want to make a go as a musician even as a part-time career these are things you gotta you got to know about. And um, I know from being a writer and trying to feel my way into how, you know, you try to make a living writing for magazines or writing books. And, you know, it wasn't like I had, you know, I had anybody holding my hand. You just sort of have to fumble your way through and, uh, you know, learn things along the way. So hopefully this is of, of use to some young musicians trying to get uh, get paid. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think it uh, it should be. Uh, and uh, even beyond that, it uh, was just, <laughs> I love those little bits of trivia. You're paying a price when there's no price to pay. Mother's trust, no money down. You're paying a price when there's no price to pay. It's a lover's 
I want to pick up on on Lulu, uh, which we touched on momentarily um, a few minutes ago. You know, we're on the show. Uh, we're kind of we're, we're getting into this kind of last you know final act of Lou's career as we speak right now. The the record that we've done most recently is Ecstasy, and next we're going to hit the Raven. Um, and, oh boy! Uh, yeah, <laughs> and so the Ra- you know the Raven and Lulu. Um, Obviously not uh, uh, critical and commercial uh, smashes, success stories, we could say, uh, at the times of their release. Um, uh, and, um, you know, they, they kind of have a, to me, they have a, a clear symmetry or they rhyme historically with Berlin, which, you know, is, is sort of this extraordinary, uh, um, you know, widescreen canvas that Lou was painting, you know, at the beginning of his solo career, that could have only ever come from Lou Reed, you know, at that moment in time, 1973, the Raven could have only ever come from Lou Reed, uh, you know, first as poetry, uh, you know, with um, uh, Robert Wilson in 2000, and then the record itself a couple years later, and Lulu, obviously, goes without saying, could have only ever come <laughs> from Lou Reed and Metallica, um, for better or for worse there at, uh, you know, in, in 2011. Um, but, but seeing Berlin, you know, kind of... Um, come back to life and get these extraordinary uh, stage performances and reappreciation, you know, years and years down the line after the fact, you know, writing a historical wrong, I think, in many ways, you know, people finally kind of acknowledging what a brilliant masterstroke that record was right there at the very beginning. I, I can't help but see a same, you know, a similar kind of um, uh, story with, with things like The Raven and certainly with Lulu, um, that were just kind of put upon and and mocked and shit on when they came out, and you know over time I think are beginning to sort of reveal themselves and and come into a a warmer light. Um, how do you how do you conceive of the that last you know ten fifteen years of Lou's career, which was not particularly kind to him from a critical you know point of view? Well, you know you you gotta admire the guy because he was not aiming low <laughs> nope <laughs> um and uh you know he cultivated a particular audience i mean he really in the same way that he was a transformer he he cultivated mul- and had multiple personas he cultivated multiple audiences but you know the audience that loved lou reed the rocker lou reed the solo artist who came out of glam and had his heavy metal turn with rock and roll animal um and you know and kind of you know stayed in character as you know the the guitar tone fetishist um who kind of kept it lean and mean made music in that context over the years um they maybe were not so into him doing avant-garde theater with Robert Wilson <laughs> in Germany. I mean, but that's what both those albums came out of. Like the Raven was basically poetry, the um, the Rob, a Robert Wilson collaboration that was staged in Germany, and I believe staged at BAM as well, and uh, and staged through Europe. Um, it was um, it was sort of well received. Um, when Lou decided to do the album of, uh, of poetry as the Raven and basically cast it with everybody from like Willem Dafoe, like Steve Buscemi, like there are all these, if I'm, if I'm remembering these, you, the you names, certainly are remembering them correctly. correctly. David Bowie, um, infamously, David Bowie, a track that I just think was great. It just made me say like, why aren't there more Bowie and Lou collaborations latter day because right. hop, hop, hop frog, frog is like, <laughs> it's like two minutes long, but it just, it's one of the rockinest things that Bowie had done in a really long time. And, uh, but as an album, I'll always remember talking to, I don't know if you guys have talked to Bill Bentley mm, over the years, in, interesting guy. He was a friend of Lou's. He lived in Austin, Texas and was friends with Sterling back in the day when uh, Sterling was a professor down there. Actually, I think mm. played. Played in a band with Sterling for a hot minute, post Velvet. Um, but he became the, um, the the publicist at Warner Brothers um, when Lou was on Warner Brothers when he was on Sire, and uh, he was the publicist who was handling the Raven. And I remember <laughs> saying, I think he was he was you know we were talking about like how much it cost and the how what the rollout was like how they tried to promote it all the different ways they tried to promote it and he was like yeah 
sure the album's <laughs> brilliant the album's brilliant but what do you do with an album like that yeah. <laughs> um and and bill's from texas so he said it with a texas accent which sure. made it even better uh so you know i thought that was incredibly ambitious i mean in a way that maybe if it had been done in a different way, maybe in the era of podcasting, people would have been able to wrap their head around that more. Maybe if it was able to get the kind of funding that would be required for it to, to tour, or maybe it could, you know, in keeping with how these things are sometimes done now, it could have been a Broadway production like mm. you know one of david burns um and uh and run for a while in one place but you know robert wilson is not for everybody robert sure. wilson is a uh, very slow moving he's best known for einstein on the beach his collaboration with a uh, with philip glass but he collaborated with tom waits he collaborated with william burroughs he uh he, he's an amazing, an amazing man. And uh, Lou recognized, like as far as ladder, we were talking about collaborators. Um, he recognized in Bob Wilson, like somebody like Warhol, I think, like somebody like Delmore, like somebody who had this incredible body of knowledge, which he did not have because he did not work in theater, but he was really interested in it. And so, you know, he would, he would, defer as bob said he would defer to bob bob like changed changed a song um <laughs> while lou was while they were doing rehearsals in germany and lou had to go home for some reason to new york and you know bob was rethinking the the, the blocking of a particular scene and the music was too fast and so he just said like <laughs> musicians like just play the same thing just play it much 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 slower <laughs> And they did. And uh, by Bob's account, he, like Lou came back and instead of like throwing the absolute like shit fit to end all shit fits, he was like, I love it, Bob. He was he got teary eyed when wow. he heard the band, the the um, the ensemble. Uh, Lou didn't play uh, himself in these Robert Wilson uh, productions. He had there was a German um, house band who played his stuff. And, uh, and then of course, Lulu was, um, was also something I didn't know going into this, that it was born of a Robert Wilson production yeah. of Lulu, um, which is a perfect choice. Like the, uh, the Lulu plays of Frederick Vedekind, you know, are kind of landmarks of, uh, you know, modern German theater. And, uh, and, um, it was famously, um, you know the stories were were made into there was a Louise Brooks film way back in the in the day. There was Lulu on the Bridge, which uh, was a film that uh, Paul Auster was involved with, and that Lou might have actually have been in, which is kind of like a meta film about um, artists producing a play of Lulu. Um, and so it was perfectly logical that he would try to tackle Lulu. Um, uh at some point um he and robert wilson decided to to do that for some reason and i didn't really get the story straight maybe somebody else will but uh i couldn't really understand why the first two lou collaborations with robert wilson uh, uh time rocker and um, poetry mm. got produced in the states uh lulu did not get produced in the States. It got produced in um, in Germany. It was produced and staged in France, staged in Brazil, staged a bunch of other places. Um, my understanding is that the music was, uh, a lot of it was, um, a lot of it was instrumental. Right. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, Lou had worked this material up and maybe because it was not staged in the States, he was like, oh, well, I, you know, Lou famously didn't throw stuff out. Um, I think, you know, the creative act, however hard or easy it was for him, it was like his sense was that the faucet wasn't always flowing. Um, mm. And I think when he, you know, when he, uh, when he created something, he wanted to, he didn't stuff it in the vault. Sure. Usually. And uh, the, um, the stuff that uh, that he had sort of um, had worked on with Lulu got uh, got repurposed for Metallica 
for the Metallica collaboration, which began as a set of an entire album of Lou Reed covers backed yeah. by Metallica. That I didn't realize the, that. That was fantastic. Yeah, and that would you know that would have been unbelievable because sure. they did a couple, and that's how the whole project came about. Um, but uh, at the last minute, Lou flipped the script. Nobody was happy about it, including his own management. Um, they got in, he got in a huge fight with his manager about it. But uh, but anyway, Metallica were just like it's Lou Goddamn Reed. It's Lou Reed. It's like yeah. let's uh, let's just roll with it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about this idea, but let's roll with it anyway. And, uh, you know, they, uh, God bless them. They, yeah. um, you know, I mean, however well or not well you think that album worked. I mean, I'd still go to the ropes saying it, you know, produced at least one bona fide masterpiece, which uh, was an unusual work for both Metallica and for Lou, something that probably couldn't have happened in quite that way if it were not the two of those creative entities coming together and that was junior dad junior dad yeah yeah, yeah. The, the last the last lou reed song you know in some ways the last yeah last song on the last uh lp that he put out yeah, it's just i mean it's 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 fascinating to me you know we're, we're gonna be doing lulu at some point in the future and just like seeing the 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 savage kind of uh uh, uh reaction that it got you know and, and thinking about someone like bob you know dylan um, who we have <laughs> spent some time talking about and thinking about ourselves on this program and, and the reaction to something like Rough and Rowdy Ways, which was just immediately lauded, you know, from the jump. Obviously, that's a, I don't want to say it's an easier record to listen to because it has fucking Murder Most Foul on it. That's not an easy song to listen to, but it's not, it's maybe yeah. not as abrasive as Lulu, right? Which which could have something to do with it. It's just, um, I don't know, I feel like, I feel like if Lulu had come out a decade later, it just um, the reaction would have been completely, completely different. But it's how time works, you know. You can't turn time around. Uh, to quote, uh, <laughs> to quote uh, one of Lou's songs from Time Rocker. Yeah, one of one of his greatest Latter Day songs. Great that, song. Uh, that's the that's that's the the interesting thing about one of the interesting things about these Wilson collaborations is that they really gave rise to some of his greatest Latter Day work. Um, but it was kind of buried in there, and it didn't. Uh, I don't think that even turned up on a studio album. Maybe. Yeah, that's um, on um, Perfect Night Live in London. I think exactly, is the only kind of yeah. official recording you can get. That yeah. and uh, what's the other one? Their Talking Book, right? Right, right, yeah, talking yeah. book, which, I, which I love, but uh, but yeah, it was interesting how savage the reviews were and how savage the fan response was. Um, I'll never, uh, you know, I'll never forget the times that I got together with Hal Wilner uh, to talk with him about Lou uh, before he passed. And one of the saddest things on the computer that I'm speaking to you through right now is this document I have of like, you know, last round of questions for Hal, um, which I uh, will never get a chance to ask Mm. him because he passed from COVID uh, early on in the pandemic. Um, And he was, you know, he was super, besides just being a genius and having created so many great musical projects over the years. um, He was a great friend to Lou. He was, um, he was, he was very, he was, he was very encouraging to me in this project. Like he gave me a number of interviews and one of them I went to his studio in uh, on Ninth Avenue and uh, we sat, um, the studio that was, uh, that I should mention was recreated for the, um, for the Lou Reed archive exhibit mm. at mm-hmm. the New York public library. Um, and uh, that was, a, that was an accurate, recreation of Hal Wilner's studio. Anyway, we were sitting in the studio and he was like, did you ever see, we were talking about Metallica because Hal was nominally involved in it. And uh, he's like, did you ever see the, 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 the German, the, the, the German film about Hitler's final days <laughs> that, uh, that some fans like, like overdubbed with, with parts of uh, Lulu. And, uh, and I was like, no. And he was like, oh, let me show you this. So he logged up onto YouTube and I'm forgetting what the name of the, uh, of the, of the movie is. I think I know what you, I think it's Downfall, right? Downfall. Very yeah. good. Yeah. I was like paging through the book trying to find <laughs> it. Um, but anyway, it was, he showed it to me and 
the two of us were laughing so hard. And he was like, <laughs> he was like, Lou and I laughed our asses off when uh. we saw this. We thought it was so funny. I mean, I don't even know if I can say this on a, on a, on a podcast, but it was uh, one of the lines from it is uh, <laughs> a subtitle um, underneath like a raging Hitler who's like in his bunker um, saying, you know, he gets news of the Metallica project and he goes, Lou fucking Reed, that cunt from the Velvet Underground, that ancient sack of shit wouldn't know metal if it bit his shriveled cock off. <laughs> so anyway, keep, keep that or cut that if you want. But, we're keeping, uh, it we're was, keeping that. <laughs> it was, uh, it was um, you know, it was, it was a remarkable thing. Bowie, uh, before his death, would say that, the record. Uh, that was, yeah, that it was a brilliant record and that in time it would be recognized as Lou's great masterpiece. I'm not quite sure if I agree with that, but I I certainly agree that he was like swinging for the fences and his interest in theater, musical theater, rock mm-hmm. opera, whatever the heck you want to call it, which now everybody and their mother is, you know, who's an, a rocker of a particular age is thinking in that way, it seems. Um uh, you know, Lou was on to it, you know, from 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 jump in the 70s when he was trying to get Warhol to to fund Berlin as a stage production. Mm. And uh, it's just it's unfortunate that he didn't live long enough to maybe see through um, uh, a project uh, that was spun out of um, uh, out of New York that was going to be a, a musical production. Mm-hmm that his manager was talking about towards the end of his life that, uh, that was going to have some pretty big names attached. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's an unfortunate note is a, a sad note perhaps. Um, but, uh, nevertheless, maybe an appropriate note for Lou to, uh, to go out at the very end of it, like you said, swinging for the fences and still, still half a century on, managing to, you know, just completely uh, confront and confound, um, you know, all his fans, all the critics, you know, anyone in the world, a man who uh, had spent a life doing that very thing. You know, he was he was doing it right up until the very end. If I was half drowning An arm above the last wave I'll just end with the end note, which was wanting to view this story from this particular moment in time. Um, I wanted to have the epilogue that kind of uh, talked about the afterlife of um, of his work. Uh, he was concerned, and he said this to he said this to Julian Schnabel. He said this to his sister. He did not want to be erased, um, and he was worried that he would. And uh, that he would be. And I, you know, I don't think he will because I think his work, um, even the less successful work um, from certain points of view, I think were, uh, were signposts that people, um, that artists will still look to uh, for, um, you know, possible things to, to aim for ways of combining um, words and music that don't, involve conventional singing um because you know lou was a was didn't have the greatest voice but he used what he had um and uh used uh you know used kind of a sing speak technique which he uh a lot of people who a number of people told me like hearing him deliver songs was kind of like license uh emily haynes um Mm. I think said specifically this that hearing him 
perform a lot of his songs gave her license to not have to sing so pretty because she's she's got a great voice but when she was studying music um she was always kind of because she was a girl she was encouraged to sing pretty but she wanted to be able to uh you know express herself in a lot of different ways um they were friends they collaborated together uh and uh she's just one of you know dozens hundreds of musicians around the world that uh that took things you know took took lessons from lou in the same way that you know he had mentors uh that he drew from whether it was delmore whether it was andy warhol whether it was laurie uh in uh in later years he took inspiration from robert wilson uh he'll you know he'll it's it's being paid forward <laughs> If I'm using that metaphor correctly, <laughs> uh, people are drawing on on his work, and I think will for a long time to come. Absolutely. There's one thing that is not happening to Lou Reed uh, here in 2023 and into the future. It is it is being erased. And Lou Reed, the king of New York, is a testament to that. We got 500. And no one's erasing this. This is 500 something fucking page. No, this is this is this is a tome. Uh, but uh, it, uh, you know, it does a justice and an honor, I think, to the man, the myth, and the legend, the King of New York. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us here on Joking the Podcast. Totally a pleasure. Thanks so much. Sunday morning brings the dawn It's just a restless feeling Early dawning Sunday morning It's just the wasted years So close behind Watch out The world's behind you There's always someone around you who it's nothing at all Sunday morning 